Good morning. So good to be able to gather together. For those that are now checking us out online, welcome. And I hope you sense the love for Jesus Christ that's here in our midst. I'd like for you now to take your Bibles and join with me as we're turning to Psalm 62. And as we're getting our bearings as to where we're positioned with Psalm 62, Psalms 54 through 60 pertain to seven significant enemies of God's Messiah plan. Seven enemies who were attempting to thwart what God was going to do by bringing the one we know as Jesus Christ into this world. Once you get through those seven significant enemies being listed, then what you have, beginning now with Psalm 61, 2, 3, and 4, are four heartfelt cries by the messianic king being offered to God for God to intervene. What we find in Psalm 62 is one of the significant heartfelt cries being described here for you and for me to understand. David is going through an extraordinary time of adversity, intense opposition, and what we can see now is a model for how to approach God in the midst of the most difficult of times. You're going to notice with me that the superscription is to the choir master, according to Jejuthan. Now, Jejuthan was a musically accomplished individual that David had appointed in First Chronicles as somebody who could lead people in corporate worship. We're told that this is a psalm of David. <coughs> and so now what I want to do as I begin reading is for you to draw out for yourself common phrases, repeated themes that can have direct bearing upon the way in which you're going to be able to process this psalm and relate it very personally to your own current life experiences. Beginning in verse 1. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I should not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? The only plan to thrust him down from his high position, to take pleasure in falsehood, they bless their with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. And then the Selah. You see it there? He starts a second stanza for you. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God, 
rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is, is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And then another, Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they, they're together, lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken. Twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Psalm 62. It's part of book two. Book one deals with the name primarily Yahweh, in English, capital O-O-R-D the personal relational name for God, which David turns to when he finds himself being confronted by enemies. But in book two, he uses the name Elohim in the Hebrew, G-O-D in English. Because this was the universal name for God, now he wants to make a statement to the enemies that he faces as well as to the world as a whole, about who this one is that reigns over all. That's what we're checking out this morning as we look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, what we want to do is to explore the depths, to examine the riches, to be able to ascend to the heights of who you are and what you're all about. You've placed this psalm strategically for us to be able to understand how David in particular faced adversity head on and what tools he used to make his way through the difficulties of life, staying faithful to the one who would send through David's line, the one to die for our sins. So Father, these moments are important as we now rally around your word. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. So again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. He was a classmate of mine. Brad was a very gifted athlete. He was also very gifted in his academics, one of those rare combinations of athletics and academics. And when he finished his four-year course as an undergrad, he headed off to Africa to begin a long-term mission impact upon various nations upon that continent. Now, he was a strong man gifted in every way. I was a bit startled then, but not overly so, I suppose, in retrospect, 
when in the course of a particular time period, a Thanksgiving time period, where he was looking wistfully back at his family gatherings, longing to be with them, He chronicles how he had gone off into the, into the bush on his motorcycle, got off, pulled out his prayer journal, and wrote down one word, alone. He felt so overwhelmingly alone in this place that God had called him to. But he had uh, the scriptures with him in his backpack, pulled them out, and turned to Psalm 62. Smiled, as only Brad can. Added two more words. For God, and then alone. So often what you and I find in the mission of life itself, it's very possible to be overtaken by this sense of aloneness. I'm all alone. This is not what I thought I, would, I had signed up for. But then your eyes rivet upon the opening phrase of Psalm 62. And you realize that in your own emotional state, some added words have got to be incorporated into your thought process. It's not about being alone. This is about for God alone. There is this sense of aloneness that David is going through. There is no sense of fellowship, no sense of friendship, no sense of connectedness in these verses. There is... There are statements made about his enemies, to be sure. But this, this passage seems to be dripping with isolation, doesn't it? And yet what you and I find here is that in the midst of the challenges of life, we can either try to take on life alone, or to understand that because of Christ's finished work on the cross, our mission in this world is for, is for God alone, regardless. Let's develop this. We're going to draw three significant observations that flow out of these stances. And the first is this, that in our times of intense trials, and that's exactly where David was after the listing of the seven enemies, we're going to begin by noting here the salvation that God alone has provided. Check out how this unfolds, beginning in verse 1. He doesn't begin, I'm just all alone. 
he begins with his mission statement, which is what you and I incorporate for God alone. And now it seems as though, because he is making us a declaration to Jew and Gentile alike, believer and unbeliever alike, for God alone my soul waits. Pause. All throughout the scriptures, what you will find is a direct relationship between trusting and waiting. Trusting and waiting. Abram and Sarah, they waited for that promised child. There's Moses out in the wilderness, and he's waiting for intervention, waiting for a burning bush type experience. There are the Israelites out in the wilderness on a 40-year wait. And then, of course, there is David, who, though given the promise of God to be a ruler of this kingdom, finds himself in a waiting room where in 1 Samuel there is, there is Saul pursuing David. In 2 Samuel there is Absalom pursuing David and there is, seems to be no peace in the wait. And maybe that's where you find yourself in the challenges and the trials of life where outwardly there seems to be no external peace in this waiting room that we have been placed into, how do you go about addressing this matter? For God alone, my soul waits. How? Where? In silence. What you and I have to do is to develop what I will call an inner sanctuary of silence. Because outwardly, there is a cacophony of noise that can disrupt what's taking place inwardly within your soul. Competing voices, where it seems as though the soul can easily become an echo chamber of a cacophony of sounds. And what we need to do is to allow the stillness of God's word to quiet the disturbances inwardly as we're facing the challenges outwardly. In his volume, Directions, James Hamilton writes, Before refrigerators, People used ice houses to preserve their food. Ice houses had thick walls, no windows, tightly fitted door. In winter, when streams and lakes were frozen, large blocks of ice were cut, hauled to the ice houses, covered with sawdust, and often the ice would last well into summer. But one man lost a valuable watch while working in the ice house. 
searched diligently for it, carefully raking through the sawdust, but didn't find it. Fellow workers also looked, but their efforts too proved futile. A small boy who heard about this fruitless search slipped into the ice house during the noon hour and soon emerged with the watch. And amazed, the men asked him how he found it. His response? I closed the door, he replied. Lay down in the sawdust. kept very still and soon I heard the watch ticking those who have the mission statement for God alone can hear the watch ticking inside the quietness of the soul But those who simply function on the basis of alone, I'm alone, deal with a cacophony of voices and emotions that create such an unsettled inner life experience. They begin to miss out just what it is that God is truly doing and what it is that God is truly saying. David has created what I might call, and you might call this morning, a silent sanctuary of the soul so that the word of God speaks. Through the memorization of scriptures and so on. Do what, do what Brad did. At a for God to your alone moments. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation, David informs us. And how would he have understood the salvation? The same way you and I would. He would have put his faith and trust in the seed to come from his line. The one that you and I know is as Jesus Christ, one of his ancestors, would be told by God to step outside. So Abram stepped out and the word of the Lord came to him. He said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. David would find that Abram had put his faith and trust in that promised offspring you and I know as Jesus Christ. The very offspring that had been promised in Genesis chapter 3 of verse 15, where God had said point blank to the evil one, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring the same idea, offspring, seed, the promised one, you and I know as Jesus Christ. 
So now, there's Brad, and he's next to his motorcycle, and he's saying, it's for God alone, because of this promised one who went to the cross to die for my sins, that I'm going to have to tell others about. Would there be one person, two people, indifferent, or with open ears? You're up now to verse 2. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. Notice the alones in verse 1, for God alone. In verse 2, he alone. Notice the duplicate of my salvation of verse 1. And again in verse 2, you don't forget your Savior, you know. There's this wealthy family in England that took their children into the country. Children went swimming in a pool and one of the boys began to drown. Some of the gardener jumped in, rescued the boy. Grateful parents asked the gardener what they could do for, for this young man that saved their son. They said he wants to become a physician. They said we'll be glad to pay his way through. Years and years later, when Winston Churchill of Great Britain was stricken with pneumonia, King of England instructed that the best physician be found to help with the health and the overall well-being of the prime minister. And so the doctor was called in. His name was Mr. Fleming, the developer of penicillin. Churchill looked at Fleming Rarely, said Churchill to Fleming, has one man given the opportunity to twice save the same rescuer. For he was also the gardener's son. What our corporate worship does for us, what our online worship does for us, is that it reminds us that we're not here alone. This is a for God alone experience of our life's journey. Brad would remind us of that. And so we find ways to stay on mission, to thank our rescuer with the way in which we live our lives, the words we express, the decisions we make, the faithfulness that we demonstrate. And when you and I reach that point where we are able to say this, then we are on task. We're able to say, I shall not be greatly shaken at the end of verse 2. But now, but now what David is going to have to do at this point is to talk to those who are his adversaries. And how do you talk to those who've created such difficulties for your own personal well-being. In verse 3, he's got a question. It's a how long question that so many of us ask when we're going through the challenges of life. But now he's very personal with those who are opposed to the Messiah plan. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? 
They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths. In other words, they are, they are religious people. They're, they're good with the blessings that flow from the mouths. But inwardly, they're cursing. Innermost soul. He's speaking evangelistically at this point to those who are opposed to the messianic plan and he wants them to think. So what does he do? He hits the pause button or what he might say in the Hebrew, the selah button. He wants people now to think seriously about this whole matter. For God alone, he alone, of one and two, tie into my salvation, of one, my salvation and two. And then ask themselves the tough questions. And where am I at in relationship to this God? Is it alone? Or am I here for God alone? As you make your way now to the second observation, not only the salvation that God alone, you see at this point, has provided in one through four, but furthermore, the hope that God alone has instilled in verses five down through verse eight. Now notice the repeat. He does not want you to miss this. Then in the midst of his aloneness, he is still talking about for God alone. But what's the difference between how he began in verse 1, first stanza, and now what he states in second stanza? In the first stanza, he began with this unique expression, for God alone my soul waits in silence. It's as if he is informing the world of what's going on internally. But now in the second stanza, he is now informing his soul of what ought to be taking place personally. It's as if he is offering counsel for his soul. I mean, if you're going to share with others, you better share with yourself. If you're going to talk about grace with others, you better apply grace to yourself. If you're going to talk about being for God alone to others, it better be for God alone to self. And what's so interesting is that this is now a repeat of what he did in Psalm 42, 43, when he addressed his depressive state. And he offered counsel, my soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Interesting. So now, he is providing medication to the pain within. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Told others to do it. But I got to pause to make sure that I'm authentic, that I'm doing it. Why? For my hope is from Him. Not from my skills, not from my comfortable externals of life. But no, 
my hope is from him. Smile when I thought about this. You've heard the Cape of Good Hope? That was not its original name. Its original name is called the Cape of Storm. But you see, historians tell us that the king of Portugal had the name changed to encourage people to travel that direction. How could he get any explorers to travel near the Cape of Storm? So they called it the Cape of Good Hope. Metaphorically speaking, what you and I find is that those who are simply traveling alone have these endless encounters with the Cape of Storms. But when you are able to embrace fully for God alone, and then what you're able to say is that even in the most difficult times like David, I'm being directed to the cape of good hope. My hope is from him. And now what he wants to do once again is to bring the sense of the exclusive in. He only is my rock. And if you've gone to Israel, you know that it is strewn with rocks. My salvation, my fortress. Do you notice the number of times he uses my? <coughs> this is personal. He only is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. And now his declaration, I shall not be shaken. But now, would you do this for me? Draw a line from verse 2 over to verse 6. Because in verse 2 he had said, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. But here in verse 6, He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. He dropped the greatly. In other words, we're saying, David's got some, David's got some momentum here. David's got some traction here. He's infusing hope internally. He is able to say inwardly is what he has stated outwardly. No, I'm not alone. This is for God alone. I'll keep on keeping on. Keep swimming. On God rests my salvation and my glory, he says, as one of the members of the messianic line leading to Christ. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. It's his declaration. And now, and now, he moves externally once again. And he looks at everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, those that are aligned with God, those that are opposed to God. And here is what he says to one. Here's what he says to all. Trust in him. No matter what you're going through in life right now, trust in him at all times. O oh, people, 
pour your heart out before him. God is a refuge for us, he says, even to his opponents. He's evangelizing at this point. And he offers you another Selah. He wants you to pause and think about that. Trust in him at all times, O peoples. Rosalind Russell, who is noted for her portrayals of sophisticated career women in the motion pictures, widely acclaimed on Broadway, I think that perhaps her greatest triumph, though, was her fight against cancer. You know, a lot is revealed about a person once they're no longer here. And after her death, this poem was found tucked in her prayer book. Trust him when dark doubts assail thee. Trust him when your faith is small. Trust him when simply to trust him is the hardest thing of all. And now, out of the silence of that sanctuary soul experience, David is now able to make this statement globally. Trust him in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And now he's saying this even to those who seem so much opposed to him. Is this astounding? Even those that are the most difficult ones in your extended circle. And he says, Selah. Selah. So now you're on to the third and the final stanza. And I simply want you to note briefly the outcome that God alone has assured. He's looking ahead. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Sounds like Ecclesiastes. It sounds like something that his son Solomon would pen. So now what I want you to do is to take that phrase, put no trust in extortion, and contrast it with what he said in verse 8, trust in him at all times, O people. So he's now looking at his enemies in the eye, the opponents to the messianic plan. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery, in contrast to what he said in the second stanza. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. <coughs> and now, for all those who seem to want to resist the repeated statements of God, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. Repetition is the means of getting our attention. The Lord calls out to Samuel, here I am, 
you called me. Eli tells Samuel, go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Samuel and 1 Samuel 3 went and laid down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling another time, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. And then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. God has, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. He's got both ears. And so he says globally, power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, the Hebrew word hesed, faithful love. For you will render to a man according to his work. He's got an eye on his enemies as he says this. An Air Force captain at Wheelis Air Base, Tripoli, came striding into a prayer gathering late. They were all finished with the meal. He was still in his flying gear. The writer tells us his face bore the marks of weariness and strain. He was the head of the fellowship of pilots in that region. Rapping for attention, he thanked the men for coming, apologized for being late, and then in a voice laden with emotion said, Men, it's been a hard day. Flying out of Turkey, I had difficulty with the radio and finally lost it altogether. And then when I approached our field, the landing gear would not come down. I circled and I circled and I circled, but the gear would not come down. And then as I contemplated what to do, I was overwhelmed with a sense of aloneness. Men, I felt so alone. But I cried out to God. And then I sensed that I should circle once more. I did. And the landing gear came clear. God was in the cockpit with me tonight. Men, I'm here for God alone. as are we. Let's stand together. So thank you now, Father. You speak to us through your word. We develop silence in the sanctuary of our souls. We want your word to speak We want to even hear the echoes in case we missed it the first time. 
Help us to shut out the cacophony of noise externally and allow for the singular voice of the sovereign God who sent Christ in the world to die for our sins to speak to us inwardly via your written word. So thank you, Father. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for being the God who is exclusive. Thank you for being the God who is all sufficient for us. The God who sent Christ to die for our sins. We give you all the praise. And you alone. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.